Okay, everybody, glad to have you clicking the play button and joining along with us once again. Um, I'm here with my good brother, Jason Bridgman. Jason, hello. What's up, Josh? What's up, people? Um, glad to get to sit down with an open Bible once again as we're working through the, uh, the book of Acts one chapter at a time, and we have come to one of the lengthiest chapters in Acts. I, actually, I, I didn't do my homework beforehand to see whether it was the lengthiest, but we got 60 verses on, on tap for today, and so we need to just get right to it and uh, start working our way through. Um, the end of chapter 6 uh, introduced us to, to, to kind of shift the focus. Luke has kind of panned the camera over momentarily to this guy Stephen who had been uh, chosen as one of the seven men in Jerusalem to help take care of the, uh, the, the tables issue that was going on. We talked about at the beginning of chapter 6. Um, but now Stephen is also, he, he's more than just a table server, we're noticing. He is also busy in the work of, of teaching and preaching. He clearly has been imparted some spiritual gifts because he's doing some uh, wonders and signs amongst the people, chapter 6, verse 8 tells us. Um, but it's his teaching uh, that really starts to um, rub certain segments of people the wrong way. And as I said toward the end of last week, not only now are we seeing uh, kind of the, the Jewish establishment, the leaders and so forth um, being perturbed, well, now we've got just some bigger pockets of, of Jewish society that are starting to be uh, have their, their feathers ruffled a little bit. There's this, you know, this synagogue of the freedmen that's that's mentioned here in chapter six, and some others. And so now we're starting to get some more widespread resistance uh, to the message of Christianity. And Stephen gets brought forth, gets uh, called out on the carpet to give a defense. And the charges uh, seem to be, if we kind of dis distilled it down, there's a couple of charges, and I think we're going to see Stephen address these, of blaspheming against Moses, blaspheming against the temple, really just the idea of, of he's, he's just blaspheming our Jewish ancestry and history and our Jewish religion. And um, now it's time for him to to speak, and that's where chapter 7 picks up. Uh, thoughts before we get started on chapter 7? This is the first time that we see anybody other than the apostles mm -hmm. who are um, you know, being slighted or persecuted against, and um, I think this is a good, good place for us to look and see how should we handle things, mm -hmm. um, and if, if we are called uh, to make a defense, if we're called to give an answer for the hope that lies within us, mm -hmm. you know, we need to be ready. Um, just because it's it wasn't just for the apostles, it was for others too. That's right. Uh, Stephen's defense here is well. First of all, uh, I, I think it's the longest and the most detailed uh, speech or sermon or defense or however you want to describe it uh, in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. And it is the first time in Acts that someone other than an apostle or maybe more specific, someone other than Peter is the <laughs> one kind of doing the speaking and and giving the defense. Um, and his defense, and, and I appreciate you saying that because what we want to notice is just the, uh, one of the things we want to notice is the manner in which he answers these charges. Uh, because not only is the content going to, I think, cause people to get upset by the end of the chapter, but I think just the composure with which Stephen carries himself uh, and the dignity with which he uh, defends himself, um, and not defending himself, defending Christ, defending Christianity, right. um, that's really what's going to serve as the, the igniter 
for the persecution that's going to come at the end of this chapter and spilling over into the beginning of chapter 8. Um, and of course, if, if you know this chapter, then you know that the content of Stephen's sermon here is something that would have been near and dear to the heart of, of every Jew. And that is, the content is their own privileged history as God's people. And, and, and that's just maybe just something worth saying before we even get looking at the specifics. Um, we want to start where people are. Um, he, re he recognizes who his audience is. He recognizes a, a little bit about these people and, and their thinking and the things that are important to them. And so, okay, let's just start right there. Instead of just immediately just you know, just blasting in with something entirely new, okay, let me meet you where, where you are, and then let's just kind of work step by step along the way. We'll see Philip do that in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in chapter 8 as well and does that in a, in a great sort of way. Go ahead. Well, this was a, a this is a book of evangelism. I mean, you think Luke wrote this for Theophilus to to teach him and to mm -hmm. instruct him, um, and we we learn what it takes to spread the gospel and what that looks like. And I think that that that's a major thing here. We we see uh, we don't just have one response. Or if if someone's going to preach the gospel, we don't have this is the the sermon that you should preach if you were teaching right, people. Right. No, it's they're all different because yep. the people that they encounter are different. I've said before, there's no, you know, one size fits all bullet that we can just load into the gospel gun and we it just works on everybody, you know. And and believe me, I like one size fits all things. I like, True. you know, I, I I like making things really simple. But people are different, and as a result, um, that that means that our approach now. The ultimately, when we present the gospel, the gospel itself is is not different. We're not going to change the message of the gospel, True. but how we go about uh, presenting that and uh, maybe the, the the build up to it, especially um, in this particular instance, um, Stephen's audience, these Jews, they're not going to see where Stephen is going with this until it's too late. And they're not going to have any good answer for his conclusion when he finally gets there. Um, these first 43 verses, I believe, is, is his response to the charge of blaspheming against Moses. So let's just work through this section for, for a couple minutes. Verse 1. The high priest, um, I'm going to presume this is maybe still, still Caiaphas, uh, the very same high priest so. who, who, who dealt with Jesus, just simply asked the question, Are these things so? And Stephen said, verse 2, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for four hundred years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac, and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. All right, so we get here a, a, a summary of some of those early chapters in Genesis, you know, from about Genesis chapter 12 through, you know, I don't know, 
16, 17, 18 or so, and then kind of some quick mention of, of, of Isaac and uh, Jacob, etc., etc. And it's important that uh, Stephen makes reference to the promises that were given uh, to Abraham very early on. And those are very critical for us to, to, to be mindful of uh, that were given back in Genesis chapter 12, the, the, the three promises that uh, Abraham was going to uh, you know, have this, this, this nation of, of people. And of course, that probably seemed extraordinary when he first heard it because he didn't even have a a child to call his own, let alone a, a, a nation that you know numbered like the the, the, the sand on the seashore or the stars mm-hmm. in the sky. Um, and then, of course, there was the promise of, of of the land, and and of course, the greatest promise that was given in all of that is that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And that, of course, is pointing forward, uh, really, to to this present time uh, in 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 their history. And that is of Christ and what was going to be made possible through Jesus, how all people uh, could be blessed and be part of the family of God. Um, there is specific attention given, though, to this, to this land promise and how Abraham did not get to have that uh, really in, in, in his lifetime uh, as far as like actual ownership of that land. You know, mm-hmm. Stephen says not even a, not even a foot's length. Um, in time... His his descendants would receive that promise, and I think that's why is it's told there in verse eight um, that he was given that covenant of circumcision, um, that this was God's promise to Abraham, that 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 inheritance would be supplied, that it is being guaranteed, and that's what circumcision was meant to be, that it was meant to be a sign of God's covenant. That that inheritance that he had promised to Abraham, or, or really to his descendants, and that of course is the physical land of, of Canaan, that it would absolutely be be granted and it would be given. Now, I'm I'm kind of singling out circumcision here because this is one of several of the things that the Jews over time really just began to to misunderstand and they started to to misuse. Mm-hmm. Um, by this time in history, by the time of the of the first century, Jews had just obsessively fixated on circumcision so much as being really like a status symbol of of, of their unique and special relationship with God, and and I think by this time they kind of had the assumption that that then made them better and morally superior to all other people and to everyone else who was not like them, and that is so far removed from what God intended that to be in the first place. And, and we talked about this a little bit, um, maybe it was in, in, in chapter 6, where we talked about you know, things that God designed to be good, that were designed to, to help point them to God. Mm-hmm. But over time, those things become just misused, and we end up folks fi- fixating on the thing as opposed to what the thing is trying to point us to, and that can be a danger for us today. What do you want to say about this? I mean, section? it just that becomes an idol. Yeah. You know, when we put anything, even the things that God has blessed us with, even the things that God has promised us, given us as a symbol of our covenant or, you know, whatever, if we make that more important than the Lord Himself, mm-hmm. then we're missing the point. I, I think and another thing here that he's helping to establish, like you said, he he made these promises when Abraham was childless, you know, the, the for you're going to have a great nation, but you don't even have a kid yet. Yeah. You know, you're going to have this great land, but you're not even there yet. 
And so it's it's not about the land itself. It's not about where you are. It's about that God is making promises. And, you know, that connection with the Lord, I think, is the common thread that we're going to see throughout this. Yeah. You know, there's a, to me, there's kind of a, kind of a neat parallel to what God had called Abraham to do and really what what Stephen is trying to help these people to do at this point in time. You know, just like Abraham was called to to pull up the the tent pegs or the tent stakes and begin moving into a new uncharted direction that, all right, it's unfamiliar to me and that place, I, I may not even be comfortable, but the Lord... The Lord's leading me, mm-hmm. and 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 I've I've got His word that's that's guiding me. Then I'm going to act by faith, and I'm going to move forward. Uh, that's what these Jews needed to do. They needed to pull up the tent stakes of what was most comfortable to them, our our you know ancestry and our our the, the rituals that go along with with Judaism. Uh, these are the things that make us really really comfortable. Um, Stephen's wanting to slowly help them. You need to pull those up, and you need to move into something that yes. It's a little bit new, but in reality, it's something God had promised a long time ago. Hmm. You know, this is something that God was was trying to point you to all along and point His people to um, all along. And really, you know, like the author of Hebrews, that's really the approach that he takes in trying to help those people. You know, he walks them through the, these Old Testament things. And, and, and yes, th- th- this is new, this Christianity thing. It's, it, it, I, I understand the, the, maybe the level of, of discomfort in, in maybe giving up some of these things in order to move forward into a new system of things. Um, but... But that's what God is calling you to do, and you need to move forward uh, in faith, just like Abraham and all of the other uh, great patriarchs did as well. This shows why we need to not come to to the Bible text with preconceived notions and ideas, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm sure the people there who were hearing this were like, "Yeah, right on. Yeah, Abraham. He mm-hmm. he was our forefather, and, yeah. and you know he." he was so great and yeah we're circumcised and I, i'm sure all of that was going on in their heads uh now they're gonna have a rude awakening later uh when we have some applications being made from all of this but uh, i think we can fall in that trap too we can read passages you know like we've always read them and and uh you know come to the conclusions that we've always come to not saying that we need to you know totally change everything that we're doing but we do need to look at at the Bible with fresh eyes yes. and constantly come to it with with this attitude of, of seeking and searching for the yes. truth. Yes, that's exactly... Hebrews 4.12 is probably my favorite verse in the Bible about the Bible. And it <laughs> talks about how the Word of God, it's it's living and it's active. And and I, I like the, the what you said there about coming with it with a fresh set of eyes because, you know, things that maybe I just was certain I understood or... Um, things that I just was so certain about um, when I come to the Word of God in that with, with a mindset that all right, teach me, Lord. Um, then I'll find that it is it is active and it's relevant for right now, and it may cause me, it may cut me, and cause me to realize, you know what, my presuppositions were just not not entirely correct, and I'm thankful that the Bible uh, works in that way. Yeah. Um, Verse 9, uh, let's look, look at this next little paragraph. So he's kind of concluded by mentioning about, about Jacob and uh, the, the twelve patriarchs. So verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him 
and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph, Joseph, Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Um, just quick little note there in verse 16 um, when it talks about you know um, th this tomb that Abraham was was in and then Joseph's bones get or Jacob's bones get carried down and, and placed in there mm -hmm. um, at that point in time that was that was literally the only piece of land that in Canaan that that family actually did own um, yeah. which the is burial just, ground. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little, little, little cemetery, so to speak. Um, that didn't mean that God had forgot His promises. Again, just it, it, in time, those promises, as far as the land was was going to be fulfilled. Uh, but the attention here in this particular paragraph is given to uh, to Jacob and to Joseph, and of course, that's a good little summary of I don't know the last what fourteen, fifteen chapters in the book of Genesis, uh, yeah. right there. Um, what I just wanted to point out from, from this particular section and what, what Stephen is doing uh, is he begins to introduce what, what is a pattern amongst the Jews, and that is this pattern of Israel rejecting men who had found favor with God. Did you notice there in verse 9 that he did not say that the brothers of Joseph were jealous of him? He says the patriarchs. In other words, our forefathers... You're the, the, the heads of, of, of the tribes from which we came, they rejected this one who, who clearly had the favor of God. And he makes that point when he says God was with him and rescued him and uh, took care of him and supplied uh, for him. Um, that's a continued pattern. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's going to give another example right here in, in, in just a minute of another person of God um, that was rejected by, by Israel. Um, and that ultimately is going to slowly but surely kind of build up to the ultimate point about, about Jesus. Just like you rejected Joseph, just like you rejected, spoiler, Moses, uh, you rejected the prophets whom God sent. The list goes on and on and on. Um, the same goes for when it comes to this one, this one Jesus. And, and you guys have been doing this. We and I think Stephen's even he would even include himself because he was a Jew. Uh, you know, we've done this, um, and uh, now's the time to stop that rejecting of of God's favored person. Yeah, you know, you see how I, I think what stands out to me in verse nine. You know, he was sold into Egypt, yet God was with him even there in Egypt, mm -hmm. away from the promised land, away from the family, even. Um, away from all of the people who were rejecting him, God is with the faithful. And yes. I, I think we're going to see that, and, and that, that's one of the things here. Um, it mentions several times how much Joseph did in Egypt, but God was with him through all of it. He's not confined to a small geographical location. He, God is wherever his faithful people are. Yes, yes. Um... Well, let's 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 keep going forward. Um, verse seventeen, um, and this we may break up this next little uh, section into, into paragraphs as well. Verse seventeen, 
But as the time of the promise drew near, I, I just would call our attention to the fact that that's now the, the second time that he's made mention to this to this promise. Um, and I think again he's referring there to the to the land promise. Right. Um, but he's continued to emphasize that God is God's going to come through on, on the things that he's said, which God had granted to Abraham. <clears throat> the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. And he dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own and Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So that's a quick synopsis of Exodus you know, 1 and maybe Exodus 2, if I, my memory serves correct, um, to just introduce uh, Moses. And, and Moses is going to be this next um, person whom God has chose as a, as a deliverer, as, as a prophet. And I, I guess the thing that, that, that Stephen is, is wanting to start to set up right here is that you know this charge of, of me just ragging on Moses? You know they they had got these false witnesses to essentially say that that's what Stephen was saying. He's just ragging on Moses. Stephen's wanting to make it abundantly clear he has great you know respect and dare I even say you know reverence in a in, in the proper sense mm -hmm. for for Moses as God's spokesman, as God's prophet, as the the, the deliverer uh, of the Israelite people. And he's going to kind of build that a little bit to make sure they understand. I'm not over here just looking to just hack off Moses. That you guys are what that's a that's a fabricated lie mm -hmm. uh to, to go off in that particular um direction. But he introduces uh Moses here in his uh, early days and then jumps verse 23 to when he's 40. So verse 23. <laughs> when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And at this retort Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons." Um, I would just maybe kind of notice at least a little bit of, of a parallel between Moses and, and Jesus here. Mm -hmm. um, now Jesus didn't go around in, in anger killing anybody, uh, and that's, that's certainly a blight on Moses' record. Um, but there is the comparison that, you know, they were, they were clearly misunderstood. Um, even, you know, here's Moses, I mean, he fully expected, well, I, I thought you would understand, and people do not understand. Um, and that certainly uh, was the case when Jesus burst onto the scene and, and preaching uh, the gospel of the kingdom that, I mean, just a lot of people just wasn't getting it. And I mean, even over a period of time, even those that were even closest to him, the apostles still just not really fully getting it. Um, but we're going to continue to go forward with the work that God's entrusted, trusted us to do nonetheless. Yeah, see, I, I think we we do see a lot of parallels between Jesus and Moses, and maybe that's a, a, another reason why he'd spend in so much time on this because it it does 
show us uh, what Jesus was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're going to see that a little bit. Uh, just a, a quick little parallel. The, the question that the, the people asked Moses in verse 27, who made you a judge, a uh, ruler over us, Jesus mentioned the same thing in sort of a question formed to someone else. Who, mm-hmm. who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Yeah. Um, and, and so, I mean, that, that's just one little side point. But there's a lot of times where we do see Moses and Jesus being being compared, you know, side by side. Yes. You know, because Jesus is the new Moses. Yes. And, you know, the, he is the fulfillment yeah. of what Moses was supposed to be. Yeah, there's a reason Moses was, was one of the... One of the figures there on the Mount of Transfiguration, and that is, uh, is Jesus was, uh, Jesus is the greater Moses, uh, and he's the greater Elijah, yeah. um, and, and and he's he's both of those in in, in one and in an even in an even greater sense. Um, Stephen continues to tell the story of Moses here. Here's the next uh, 40-year section of his life, verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. And so... Um, here's the specific calling of, of once again, this is God's chosen man. Uh, here's a man where God is, in, a, in an amazing way, is making it known, I'm with you, um, and, and you're the one that I've chosen. And um, You know, it, it's neat to see that this calling was confirmed with, with an amazing sign, the burning bush. Um, and then, of course, Moses' leadership, even after this, is going to continue to be confirmed with more signs and wonders and uh, just amazing things. In fact, I think uh, maybe that's going to be said here in the next couple verses. Yeah, verse 36, he's gonna, that's going to be stated uh, again. And um, that's kind of similar to, again, the present situation right here in the first century uh, Jerusalem world. Um, because Jesus' apostles, they were identified as being um, his ambassadors with a sign of fire. That happened in Acts chapter 2. We saw that already. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, it's going to just continue to be confirmed with more signs and more wonders thereafter. And that's all these other miracles that we've been noticing in, uh, at the end of chapter 2 and in chapter 3, etc., etc. But, you know, as great as Moses was... The point here that Stephen's slowly building at is that there's one who is greater than Moses, uh, who who is yet to, who was yet to come. Uh, now, by the time that Stephen's talking, he's he's already come and he's already been here. I, I think we man we see so much that God is consistent, mm-hmm. um, and all the way through this, we've we've seen God did this and God was here and God was with them and God spoke to them and um, you know the way God is operating, like you said in the Book of Acts is the same way. I mean, he's working through the people. He's showing himself to be the Lord. He's proving himself with the signs and wonders and that sort of thing. And it's no surprise that some people are rejecting because they did the same thing with Moses and the rest of them. Yep. Um, but you do see that you know God isn't doing really anything new. Uh, you know, they should have, have seen these signs and, and realized, whoa, this is exactly what was happening then. 
So, you know, maybe I should pay attention to that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the rejecting, let's just read verse 35. He just flat out says it. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Hey, hmm. that might be a reference to a certain somebody. Dun, dun, dun. Verse 38, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And our fathers refused to obey him. But they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. And as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't even know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me, here's the quotation, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O host, house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Now that, <laughs> those, those last couple of verses, hmm. summarizes a, a long stretch of history. That really just yeah. covers pretty much the whole remainder of the Old Testament True. Um, in a, in a fast-forward kind of fashion. Um, but Stephen's making the point here. I mean, the, the, the important verse in all that, uh, to me, is verse 37. Um, mm -hmm. And that is that God's going to raise up for you a prophet that's, that's like me. He's, he's, he's not exactly like me, but there's going to be some similarities. And in fact, he's, he's going to be even greater. Um, and this point about the, the signs, how Moses was, was able to do those signs, and, and now then to parallel that to, to Jesus. Um, you know, Jesus uh, could not have been someone who was in some way usurping Moses' authority, nor could Jesus, as he was accused, uh, could he have been a, a blasphemer uh, of God in any way? Um, because those who blaspheme God could not perform genuine miracles. Mm -hmm. I, I think about what's said in... Uh, in John chapter 3, whenever Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, let's see, verse 2. Yeah, verse 2. Uh, Nicodemus came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Right. And, and, and that's the key, and, and you've, you've made that point early on. You know, to, We want to notice how God is with these different individuals. God was with Abraham. God was with Joseph. God is with Moses. And when it comes to this one who's going to be raised up like a prophet uh, from among you, um, God is with him too. Uh, and that was confirmed and ratified by the, the signs and the, the wonders that he did. Yeah, it, but even with all that evidence, we have human nature that kicks in there in verse 39. They were unwilling to be obedient because in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Yeah. Um, you know, isn't that our issue today? Even if we come out of something that's terrible, there's always, you know, we're longing for those glory days, what it used to be like. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even when we come to Jesus, there is that temptation to, to want to go back to our sinful ways, or, you know, the, our old walk of life. Um, and that's not anything new. That's something that even back, back in Moses' day, yeah. it, it was the same thing. Yeah. 
Well, and just as, you know, in Moses' day, they, they turned to idols because for whatever way they found some measure of, of comfort in that. Hey, that's mm. something tangible that we can see and we can touch. Uh, and then the other kinds of idolatry that happened through history. Uh, the Jews to whom Stephen is speaking right now, um, no, it wasn't a golden calf, but they had made Judaism into an idol, or at least aspects of, of Judaism into an idol. Let's turn back to what, we're going to just keep clinging to what it is that uh, these, these physical outward things that we can just grab onto and find uh, some, some comfort and, and, and some security in. Um, and Stephen ain't about that. Stephen's, Stephen's trying to point to, uh, to the better way. Um, yeah, man, verse 42, where he says, you know, it wasn't to me that you were offering these sacrifices when you were in the wilderness. You know, even when they were there supposedly with God um, and with God leading them and guiding them, um, you know, journeying on to the promised land, still they were sacrificing to other idols and they were their focus was not solely on the Lord. That's right. Uh, the quotation there from uh, verses 42 and 43, that's taken out of Amos chapter 5. Uh, and Amos would have been one of the, one of the later prophets in, in, in Israel's history. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the parallel that you guys, as he talks to this council, you guys are essentially doing what, what, our, what our forefathers did long ago. And continue. The, the, I mean, if you want, if you want to talk about what was the main sin of the Old Testament, the main sin of the Israelite people, it, it's idolatry. Yeah. And okay. of course, that idolatry took on different forms at different times. It was never just one specific idol. It was always whatever the, you know, the current flavor of the day was. Um, but it was idolatry. And, and Stephen says, you. He's trying to help them to see you. You guys are doing the same thing, uh, just in a different kind of way. Um, and one of the ways in which they were, you know, doing that idolatry was in how they felt about the temple. Um, and that is this next little section. I think forty-four through fifty is Stephen his attempt to answer this charge of, of blaspheming against the temple. So, verse forty-four: Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Um, we maybe would better know that as the, the tabernacle. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found, here we go, here's another one, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. That, of course, uh, is, is, is the temple. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So, uh, Stephen just starts talking about, you know, he, he begins by talking about, again, let's go back to the beginning, let's talk about the tabernacle, that was the place where, where Moses met with God, and, you know, got to, you know, Talk to him face to face, uh, as the that's the expression the scripture uses. Talk to him like a like a man talks to his friend, um, and, and then of course that then gives way to this more permanent structure uh, after some some centuries, and, and that's the temple complex. And you know that was an idea. That wasn't God's idea, right? You know, as, as Stephen points out, that was it was David's idea, and I think David was motivated by a good 
thought and a good idea that, I, I, you know, here I am living in this nice castle and palace, and God, it's a reference to, what is it, First Samuel chapter 12, or Second uh, Samuel chapter 12, um, that, you know, I'm living in all this opulence, you know, well, God deserves a special dwelling place. And... Um, and God, all right. Well, well, let's 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 work with that a little bit. And mm. but you're not going to be the one to do it. Your son Solomon's going to be the one to do it. And God gave. I mean, there was there was lots of directions on the the, the temple and the construction of it and all the things that were to take place uh, within the temple. Um, but at the end of the day, as as Stephen points out here. Um, God doesn't doesn't live in houses that are that, that are made by hands. Um, that certainly was a place where you know if you were the high priest, you'd go and 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 offer the sacrifices to God and, and meet with God in that way. Um, but God is not confined to that box. And I don't know if over time, if maybe maybe that's just the way Jews started thinking that mm. somehow, hey, that's God's house over there, you know. Well, Swing by and and you know uh, say howdy to him or hey what's the address for God's house I want to mail him a letter and <laughs> mail that over to the mailbox over at the temple um, but it seems like maybe there were people who had developed that sort of a mindset that God was confined in that way uh, and as he quotes here uh, verses forty nine fifty and I don't have the reference right offhand what uh, Isaiah sixty six okay Isaiah sixty six um. You know, God Himself rightly says, "Heaven is His throne." I mean, the earth and everything that's on the earth. I mean, this is my footstool, um, and uh, so much above that. And and so the, the things that 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 Jesus had said about the temple um, were right and proper. And whatever Stephen had said about the temple, and we don't we don't have all the specifics of that. I'm assuming he only said what Jesus would have said about the temple. Um, Trying to help folks to see that again, it's it's not about these physical things that have been part of our our ancestry and our history. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, you you think about the tabernacle when it was first constructed, and and they were moving that around in the wilderness. You know, God would tell them when to pick up and when to move it, and. What that signified was that God is with them. No matter where they're going, He is mobile. He is He's able to lead them and, and be with them directly. Yes. Um, now, when you when you take up roots and you're in one specific place, and so that's what the temple was, you lose that imagery some of you know being able to move around, and, and that's why I think it was such a shock when the when the nation of Israel was taken away into Babylonian captivity. Uh, the whole book of Ezekiel is, is spent, you know, chapter one with this vision that that God's God's chariot is like these you know, angels that that can zap from one place to another, it's mm-hmm. like lightning quick, and and He's everywhere all at once because they had lost sight of that. They had seen Him as, you know, like you were saying, I'm in the temple, and mm-hmm. that is where God is. God yeah. cannot be anywhere in the temple. So if you're in Babylon, you're not with God because you're not next to Him. Yeah. Um, but it's all about making the temple an idol. And here, I mean, we just see it was never intended to be that from the very beginning. Well, and, uh, you know, just like with, just like with circumcision uh, or, you know, any number of other, you know, various rites and rituals that, had, that, that were part of, of, of Judaism. Um, I mean, even by this time, I mean, synagogues, I mean, I, well, I don't know where the Old Testament authority for that was ever. But by the time of the New yeah. Testament, that had become such a 
just a normal and accepted thing, and that was such a prized and treasured thing. And it was the idea that because we have those things, well, that's what makes us who we are. Mm. You know, the fact that we have the temple, that's what makes us special, and that's what makes us God's people. The fact that we have circumcision, hey, that's what makes us special and different from, uh, from the rest. And that's never been the case. That has never been the, the identifying mark of, of, of what makes someone a follower of God. You know, even like with the circumcision thing, you know, Paul in the book of Romans, you know, spends several chapters talking about how um, what was even more important than an outward act or performed thing on your flesh was the purity of your heart. Um, and, you know, the same would go for, for, for the temple or, or, or whatever else. You know, just, it's great that you have those things. It's great that you've been able to use those things. Um, but, but that's not the, the measure of, of your devotion to God or, or whether or not God even approves of you. That's the other thing. Right. Um, and we could do the, the same thing today with the, the, the various things that you know, God's given us in, in, under His new covenant. Um, and we can take those things and we can somehow wrap up our entire identity in them and we've made a complete mess of something that God has given us to be a tool to drive us to Him. Well, what about how we look at the church? Yeah. I mean, and, and sometimes even specifically like a certain building, yeah. like the church building, you know what? Some people can't imagine, oh, you wouldn't tell a lie in the church building or, <laughs> you know, you, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't use bad language in, in that building, would you? Yeah. It's like, well, what's the building? I mean, yeah. where, where do we get that from? But it's, it's more of our heart and God is always looking for a heart, you know, and sometimes we think that if I can't be in the building, then uh, I, I'm not with God. Uh, so, I mean, there are some times where we might not be able to assemble with the saints and be in the same physical location as them. Are we any you know, less a part of God? Are we any you know, less connected with Him? I don't know if I've showed you this song before from an old hymn book, Ain't It a Shame. Um, and the song, the, uh, the, the lyrics of the song, it's got three or four verses. And so like one of the verses says, Ain't it a shame to, to gossip on Sunday? Ain't it a shame, a gossip and shame? Uh, ain't it a shame to lie on Sunday? Ain't it a shame, a lying shame? Then the chorus, after naming, you know, ain't it a shame to do all these terrible things on Sunday? The chorus says, when you've got Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and you've got Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, ain't it a shame? So, hey, you've got six other days of the week that you can get all your sinning out, but you know what? Sunday. Now, Sunday is such a sacred and special day, you don't dare do those things on a Sunday. Uh, and that, that hymn, I mean, that was written back in... This is like a depression era um, songbook. Well, so that it is depressing. It is depressing. <laughs> it's depressing to know that someone wrote it. Um, this was published in 1956, but it was probably written quite a bit prior than that. Um, but it just shows that there were even people. You know, so we we're talking about just in the last century. You know, who even in a hymn made it clear that they had created an idol out of out of Sunday, the Lord's Day. Yeah, it is the Lord's Day, um, but. You know, I, I don't. I don't want to take that and and start putting things into it that never were intended. You know, we think about people who have, you know, essentially taken the the Sabbath principle mm. about about not working, and they've placed that on Sunday. You know, just like the Sabbath was the Lord's day for them, well, Sunday's the Lord's day for us, and so you shouldn't do work, shouldn't mow your yard, um, you know, paint your house or go to the store or do nothing like that on a Sunday afternoon. Um, 
it's creating an idol. It's yeah. creating, and, and I, listen, I, I don't want to, maybe I'll temper that by saying, if somebody has a personal conviction where they just don't feel like they should should do certain things, all right, that's fine. You live within the constraints of your conscience, um, but it might be worth going back and recalibrating your conscience. Right. Do some do some restudying uh, as to whether your conscience is even, you know, set properly about about those sorts of things. Um, so that's, that's what Stephen has to say about... Uh, the temple, which then leads to this kind of most scathing section of hmm. of, of Stephen's defense, because he, he is now going to turn the tables a little bit. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people. I wonder, you know, what would have been the reaction on their face at this point. <laughs> uh, uncircumcised in heart and in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Now, let's just say, those phrases and those words that he's using there about being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and uh, resisting the Spirit of God, those are things that God had already said multiple times in the Old Testament about His people. He's just repeating what had been said all along. Uh, So this is not just Stephen just going into business for himself. He says, as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Um, it just I can't help but just think about, if you've ever read Isaiah, especially if you've ever read Jeremiah, I mean, there's a reason we call Jeremiah the weeping prophet, because yeah. that poor guy just with with very little success just kept saying what God wanted him to say and was met with resistance at every turn the poor guy got thrown down into the bottom of a of a well a cistern and was left there you know would have been left there to just die um there were other prophets that were you know think about John the Baptist what happened to him yeah he's, he's got his head cut off um and all the others that could be added uh, to that list. Um, Stephen's just saying, you, you, you guys are you're resisting the Lord. That, that's the issue here. It's not that you're resisting what I'm saying or these other apostles are saying or even that you're resisting what the previous prophets have said. You're resisting the Holy Spirit of God. God was working through those people just as God's continued to work through these people that's standing before you right now, and you're resisting the Lord. And it makes me think about... Um, that guy that we just noticed back in, was it chapter 6 or chapter 5? Um, Gamaliel, mm-hmm. who cautioned about, hey, you, you better be careful about what you do here with these, these Christ followers because we don't want to be found you know, fighting against the Lord and, and pushing back against Him. Um, and well, Stephen's bold enough to just say, that's what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I like verse 52. You know, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? It's probably easier to count the number of prophets that you know, didn't yeah. face persecution than it is to count the rest because that's, that's what it was. Um, but you know, that, that seems to be the mark of a faithful prophet, uh, those who are persecuted. Um, and, and not saying that just because you're persecuted, you're doing the right thing. But if you are doing the right thing, you are probably going to get persecuted, and there's going to be some pushback. Um, 
you know, and so just if if we start noticing that nobody is saying anything against what we're we're trying to do, or we don't experience any kind of resistance in our teaching, then we probably need to reevaluate our message yeah. to make sure it's it's the one that the Lord actually intended for us to share, um, because that's that's what it is. Um, I think too here in, in verse fifty three that law ordained by angels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's another little dig here at because primarily you're you're having a Sadducee audience, uh, yeah. you know, with that council. Yeah, and so it's like you know if if this other stuff didn't get you riled up enough, yeah, don't forget it's you know the angels have a hand in this too. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting because I maybe I missed it, but Stephen never actually says the name of Jesus in any of this. Right. Although he is clearly making references. Uh, we noticed that one earlier in verse um, 30, 37. And then right here in verse um, 52, uh, the righteous one who hmm. had been talked about all along. And then he does what Peter did multiple times in his previous sermons. He points, puts the onus on them. Whom you betrayed and whom you murdered, you did this. Um, he is accusing them and letting them know that the, that the guilt, of, of, if there's any wrong that's taken place here, it, it's over there on your all side of the equation. Uh, mm-hmm. You guys killed the Lord, and um, and now it's time to, to repent. I mean, I, I think if Stephen yeah. had been given the opportunity to, to keep on talking, I mean, I kind of take it that probably right about at the end of verse 53 was maybe when he was essentially cut off. I'm sure. Um, I'm sure he would have then done what Peter had done previously, and that is, all right, I've told you the bad news, but let me tell you the good news. Mm-hmm. And the good news is is that you can you can repent and that you can find forgiveness and you can be saved just like all these other people that have, have found that same salvation as well. And that's the good news of the, of the gospel. It's for everybody, doesn't matter what you've done. Um, you guys can can can, can change, um, but unfortunately, it seems like he never really gets that opportunity to, to get that far. Yeah, he he was almost there. It was, it was like right before. Um, it, something that I, I thought about with this, you know, how the perspective of those current day Jews during that time period of the of how they viewed their forefathers, the patriarchs, Moses, and and all the rest of them. I mean, obviously, they they held them in high regard. Um, but you know, it's easier to hold a, a prophet who's dead in high regard and talk about how great they are, mm-hmm. because if they're dead, they can't criticize you for what you're doing right now. Yeah. Um, but I mean, really, they can, because of what they said, and the words are the ones that that judge them. Because um, verse fifty-three, it was that law that was ordained yeah. that you know, they didn't keep. It, it's these people weren't any closer to keeping the, the law than their ancestors were. Yeah. Um, but it's always easier to say, no, I've got the prophets on my side. I, you know, I, I really respect them um, when they're not around to tell you any different. Yeah. Um, but here they are face-to-face with a prophet, uh, you know, in, in Stephen here, uh, and, and we see what their reaction is to him yeah. uh, and, and, and this response. So he, he, in a roundabout way... All right, so he's he's the one that's being accused of blasphemy. But by the end of verse fifty-three, when he says, "You know, the law was delivered, you you didn't keep it," you guys are the ones that have blasphemed. Mm. I mean, not keeping God's law—well, that is blasphemy. 
You know, you, when, you, when you've been, you know what's right and you don't do it, you've been taught what's right, you don't do it, uh, th that's blasphemy uh, against the Lord. And um, I, I was thinking there in verse 51 when he uses those descriptions to describe just their, their stubbornness, the stiff-necked people. Probably the one that I think maybe would have stung the most would have been to call them uncircumcised. Mm, yeah. You know, again, because we're, we're so about circumcision. But what he points out is you are uncircumcised in heart and in your ears. Uh, and, and that's where it really needed to fundamentally take place. You can be circumcised outwardly as much as you want. You, know, you can do that to yourself the hundreds of times. And it isn't going to matter until you have been circumcised in the heart. And, of course, the great parallel uh, that we think about uh, today, that's one of the things that... Uh, Baptism is, is designed, I think about in Colossians chapter 2 where he talks about that, that mm -hmm. uh, that's what's taking place in, in, in baptism, that there is a, a circumcision that's taking place. And it's taking place in the heart when we are truly uh, obedient and penitent when we come to the Lord and, and seek His forgiveness. Um, anything else through 53 before we look at the kind of the the upsetting ending to chapter 7? That's all I got on it. Well, 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. What does the numeric standard use? Same word? Uh, they were cut to the quick. Cut to the quick. All right, enraged probably <laughs> makes more sense to, <laughs> it does. to most of us. Yeah. And they ground their teeth at him. This is, can we stop right there for a second? I, I've, mm. I've been mad before, and I've been mad before to the point where, you know, I've kind of, you know, uh, gritted my teeth a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but... I, I actually take this that they they bit him. Is that, is that the way that you read that? Hmm. I hadn't thought about that before. I, maybe I, so. I, I actually I, I think that maybe they, they actually you know came upon him with hands and actually were just biting him. Now I, I could be totally wrong about that. Um, having said that though, when it gets to a point though where you're either grinding your teeth or you are literally biting someone with your teeth. That's a that's a whole different level of anger than than what what I'm accustomed to. Yeah. Um, like yeah. I said, I could that's very true. rare instances in my life where I've even been that mad, to even grit and grind my teeth at, at something. Verse fifty five. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears, and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Um, kind of it puts a lump in my throat, to be honest with you, just to even read that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the reaction here uh, of the people, especially, you know, all right, so they're already, at the, at the minimum, they're grinding their teeth at him. And for them to see Stephen just continuing to entrust himself to God, you know, he's looking up into the heavens and, you know, he's, I, I take it he's saying, verse 56, he's saying these words out loud to where they can hear him say this, that I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Um, of course, Son of Man was one of the great descriptions you know, used of Jesus. I, I think probably that was probably Jesus' most favorite 
title that he would use for himself, yeah. uh, son of man. Um, and the fact that, you know, I mean, I, I have questions about this, you know. I mean, I mean, did, what he saw, did everybody else, could they see that? Right. Uh, or is this just something that was kind of, you know, in, in his mind, God allowed him to, to see that through faith? Uh, I don't know, but it's clear that just, again, his, his composure in light of their, their rage and their anger, it just incited them even more, which is why verse 57 then says, you know, they start crying out with a loud voice and they're literally putting their fingers in their ears and uh, rushing at him and throwing him out of the city and, and stoning him. Um, as I said at the beginning of, of, of our discussion, these things really seem to serve as, as the impetus for, for the persecution that, that begins really in earnest right here and then spills over here into the next chapter. It does. Man, this, the reaction of the people here, it's really childish if you think about it because who, who do you see as you know, responding uh, in the worst ways to things that they disagree with most of the time? You know, I'm thinking of, I've, I've seen kids, I'm not going to mention any names of maybe my children or, or, or anything, but, you know, you see times where they just, they start throwing a fit. They, they don't like what you're saying. And so they, they might even like close their ears, you know, yeah. put their hands on their ears and just start screaming, I'm not listening or, or you know, or, or just get so mad and just, ah, and just this rage. That's exactly the kind of, yeah. of attitude we see here. It's not a, a, well, let's reason together and let's let's come to a logical conclusion. It's it's just, I'm so emotionally charged right now that I can't, you know, physically think straight. And, uh, you know, it, it, we, we see that uh, in their response. Well, and, you know, a lot of this is also due to the fact that they couldn't give an answer for, for what, he had, mm. what he had presented back to them. It's and, um, again, that's kind of that... That I've I've seen this with my own child, uh, Hattie. I will I will drop a name. <laughs> uh, you know, you know you 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 confront a child about something that you I mean you know that they did, and you try to as best you can very gently try try to lead them to come to to an awareness of what they've done on their own, and then maybe it gets to a point where they're all right, they're not getting it. So right, I'll just tell you what it is that you've done, mm-hmm. and there is just this moment where. Okay, there's the the silence of I've been caught and now I don't even know what to say, and so the only thing I know to do to react well there's there, there's 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 a couple possibilities you could do the right thing and that is have contrition and humility and you know I'm sorry seek forgiveness um, or be like this you start acting like a baby you start throwing a temper tantrum and lashing out and you end up doing things you end up doing things that. I mean, I would almost like to think that these people would would not have done otherwise. I mean, the kind of I don't imagine any of these people prior to this point in their lives had ever done something like this, something this violent toward toward anybody. I mean, imagine yeah. who all was there that day. If there was just like like regular people, just regular you know dads. Yeah. And then they came home that afternoon. Yeah, I'm a murderer now. You know, I mean, how does that conversation go? Yeah. Um, <laughs> But but that shows what can happen when we get so steeped in our uh, well traditionalism, mm-hmm. or when we get so just tied to this is just what I've always believed, and I ain't ever going to give it up, regardless of what anybody else shows me. 
um, we can end up acting in just a, a completely wrong and contrary contrary way. Hopefully, never to the point where we'd end up, you know, gnashing our teeth at people or, or picking up stones and rocks, throwing it at, at someone. But um, this ought to serve as a cautionary tale. Yeah, I mean, let's let's make it personal, you know, for our listeners. What happens if if you read something in the Bible that? doesn't coincide with what you have always been taught or what you always have believed about something. What's your response going to be? Are you going to be upset and act like a child? Or are you going to logically try to, to look through this and see, okay, what what does God say about it? Um, and what what does He expect out of me? Because mm-hmm. it is it possible that, that we can be wrong about something that we've believed our entire life? Yeah. Is it possible that a large group of people could be wrong about something? Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. So what are we going to do about it? And uh, I'm not saying that, that we should always just go around thinking, man, I'm probably wrong about everything I believe. Yeah. But we should be willing to, to look at it and, and examine it. Um, you know, true faith uh, invites scrutiny and it, it invites being examined. Yep. And if that's the kind of faith we're looking for, we should be open to that sort of thing and you know, willing to change if we, we find evidence that supports that. Yeah, I've got a lot of strong convictions and, and convictions are good, but I, I, I always want to temper that with, but I could be wrong. And, yeah. and I would invite and appreciate, you know, we sometimes say this when, uh, preachers get up, say, you know, you would be my friend to point out to me where I'm wrong. I'm going to say that just because that's the standard thing to say. No, I mean, I say it because I mean it. Yeah. And it, it, there, there are things that I have changed my conviction about over the, the 39 years that I've lived here on this earth. And uh, I imagine that'll probably continue to be the case. Uh, I, I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say that I've got it all completely figured out and there's no reason for anybody to try to convince me otherwise um, for the remainder of my days. Um, yeah. You know, Jesus, when the, the idea there of, when it says in verse um, verse 56 that um, the Son of Man was, was standing there at the right hand of God, I, I kind of take that as, that was Jesus' way of giving His approval of, of, of Stephen and how he had acquitted himself uh, there in that moment and had, had done what was right. Um, it's probably worth saying a word about verse 59. Um, mm-hmm. The question is often asked about, you know, can we offer prayers to Jesus? And, and while I am usually going to be the first to say that when Jesus modeled prayer for, for his disciples, he, he did teach that uh, prayers are to be offered to the Father. Um, Having said that, Jesus also modeled that um, while he himself was still on the earth. Um, And I realize that Hebrews and other places talks about how Jesus is our mediator. Um, And so, you know, we picture this in our mind. All right, I'm praying to God, but Jesus is in between and he's the the mediator between us. Um, But having said all that, I am not going to tell somebody that they have done wrong or that God is not going to accept their prayers if they pray to Jesus. Stephen is calling this. I mean, this is you call it what you want. Somebody, somebody has tried to explain this away by saying, "Well, that's not really a prayer. It's him just, you know, kind of just shouting out as if he's just talking to Jesus." Well, well, what is prayer? 
Prayer is just talking to the Lord. Um, and so uh, it, while that's not necessarily the, the, the pattern of my prayers, at least in the, the, the exact wording that I use, uh, I'll say this. Jesus is, is pretty generally uh, a lot of the content of my prayers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether that's me saying that directly to Jesus or whether that's me saying that to the Father about Jesus, um, the Father and the Son are one. And uh, it, again, I think it's one of those things where we can end up picking at a knit um, <laughs> that yeah. did, did really, I mean, what are we proving? And, and I'm not really sure what, 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 what's, what we're trying to do there. Yeah, just some thoughts on that, and and this this is one of those things that I hope everybody takes time to study on their own because uh, again, like we're we're trying to reason through this and be logical. Yeah, we're not trying to tell anyone what what to believe or right. how to look at things. But you know, consider uh, the nature of Jesus being a mediator. What does that mean? If you look up some of the passage where it talks about he is the uh, intercessor, he he is the mediator. Um, it's because of his blood, and it's because of his death that allows us that connection. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a couple times in Acts already. I think in Acts chapter one and also Acts chapter four, potentially, we have people speaking. It, it seems like to Jesus uh, when when Peter offers that prayer in Acts one of uh, asking the Lord to mm-hmm. help guide them. Verse twenty four: mm-hmm. uh, "You, Lord, know the hearts of all men. Show the one that you have chosen." Jesus had a hand in choosing the other apostles, yeah. so maybe there. But also uh, another passage to consider in John 16, um, verse 26. So John 16, 26. In that day, this is Jesus speaking. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will request of the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and you believe that I came forth from the Father. So, like this, this concept that that we only are able to ask God because we ask, we we send it through Jesus. You know, it gets to Jesus' desk and He requests He's on our career. behalf. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That seems to be what John sixteen is saying is not happening. Yeah. Um. But again, I I don't we're not, we don't want to split hairs on this and, and nitpick. But. Yeah. Each, each each one you need to be fully persuaded in your own mind about that. And if if it violates your conscience to to utter a prayer. You know, directly to Jesus. All right, then, then don't. I mean, just follow the the, the pattern that uh, Jesus laid forth when he was asked. You know, to to teach about prayer. Um, but I would just be careful not to be too incredibly dogmatic about that, right? Because uh, right. we have we have passages like this one. Um, um, it, again, I, and I don't, I don't even really want to try to make a big point about that, but it does seem that's a, that's a question that comes up uh, from time to time. Uh, the other thing there is in verse 16, that the other part of this, this, this prayer or this crying out is that uh, Stephen does something very similar to what Jesus did as Jesus was dying, and that is he cries out to the Lord not to hold this sin uh, against them. Um, we want to be clear that... Um, these people were not just automatically forgiven in that moment just because Stephen asked for it, just like the people at the cross were not automatically forgiven when Jesus said, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Um, it is, though, just a cry out for for mercy. You know, be merciful to them um, and um, that give them the opportunity. You know, all right, Stephen in that moment obviously realizes his life is coming to an end, um, but asking the Lord, give them the opportunity, let, let their life be extended to where they could come to their senses and 
uh, repent and um, you know be forgiven uh, of this. Um, he's not telling God what to do. Um, God's going to do what God's going to do. Uh, but this is a request. Yeah, right. I, I mean, like I, I think we have instruction not to pray uh, for you know sin of someone who is not repenting because I mean they have to make that choice and they have to do that on their own. Otherwise, uh, you know, verses like verses fifty-two here where it talks about the murderers and betrayers you have become, that would not have been true if what Jesus said on the cross, you know, if, if they were automatically absolved from that sin. Right, right. I think, and Stephen probably also realizes that these people are acting out of a, a knee-jerk human emotion in the moment. And uh, and that's why he, he's asking the Lord to be merciful to them. Because how many of us have, again... In a moment of just whatever it is that triggers us to anger, we, we do something that under any other circumstances we, we never would do or would even entertain the thought of. And I think Stephen, he's keenly aware, even though he's, he's, he's literally dying, uh, he recognizes that these, and these are his brethren, that's the other thing. I mean, these are his, by the Jewish faith, um, these are his, um, his, his, his brothers. And... Um, yeah, I mean, he doesn't want the he doesn't want to see these people go to hell for what they've done. Uh, he wants these people to have the opportunity to to get to go to heaven. Um, and then there's that the, the euphemism that gets used uh, several times in scripture that at the conclusion of all this he he falls asleep. It's just a euphemism for for death. Um, we passed over it, but um, this is the the good teaser for for chapter eight and. Luke's just a master of just, again, doing these quick little introductions to these people who will then kind of burst onto the scene in a bigger way. We're introduced there in verse 58 to Saul. That It says that they laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Um, the, the laying down of the garments, I don't know if there's, and I've, ne I've never studied this, I don't know if the laying of the garments has some kind of, um, if there's some kind of meaning behind that other than, all right, it's like I'm going to take my jacket off so that I can throw my stones easier. <laughs> um, or, you know, I don't want my jacket to get dirty while I get blood on my clothes from, from you know, killing this guy. Um, but they lay it down at Saul's feet. And judging by um, the way chapter 8 is going to begin, it seems as if Saul really is serving as, as kind of a kind of a ringleader to some degree mm -hmm. um, that he's in in his zeal um, is maybe kind of helping to to push some of these others in that direction and uh, it's hard not to just picture this like a scene in a movie where you know there's there's the villain but the villain has his henchmen and that's kind of yeah. it, it's hard for me to yeah. separate that and not look at it this <laughs> way that this looks like Saul is just like Snapping his, snapping his finger, and now all of his henchmen are, are doing this. That, that's probably a crude way of describing the scene here, but but it does seem as if Saul is is kind of pushing the charge against Christianity at this point. Yeah, it, I, would, I would say so. You know, in the past I've looked at, at verse fifty-eight, and when it says he was a young man, I was like, oh, so this is when he was a kid, and he saw that, and then it, it just stuck with him, and later on. But it doesn't seem to be the case, especially with Acts 8, verses 2 and 3. The time frame there just doesn't make sense yeah. that he had a lot of time to grow. and, and mature. No, he was, he was already of this mindset. Yeah. Um, I think probably what we have, you know, the fact that he's a young man, it's, it's kind of probably the Absalom thing. 
You know, Absalom was was a young man, and what happened with him? I mean, he started accumulating followers to himself, as opposed to that old old man David, you know, yeah. out with the old, in with the new, and that does happen. Uh, that happens a lot historically with um, men who come along, and they've got. You know, they've got just a certain personality. They've got a charisma about them. I don't know if that was the case with, with Saul. We know that he was very schooled and learned in, in the ways of, of, of Judaism. And so maybe there was, there was some of that working. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're correct that the time frame with, with verse 58 down through the first couple verses of, of chapter 8, I think this is all happening pretty quick. Yeah. Um, this is not uh, over a long period of time. This is all probably happening within a matter of, of, of days, I'm taking it. Um, but that wraps up um, the things that I have to say about chapter 7. What what say ye? Well, just a couple things. Um, verse 54, that phrase, cut to the quick or, or whatever yours said. Uh, they were enraged. Enraged. Or, yeah, yeah. That's the same phrase that was used in Acts 5.33. When the uh, council heard what Peter uh, and the apostles were, were saying, and they, they wanted to kill it, chapter 5, verse 33, they intended to kill them, but that's when Gamaliel stepped up and, and mm-hmm. made sure that that didn't happen. So that was good. The same type of outrage and uh, you know this attitude that they had against the apostles, Stephen saw that, but he didn't have anybody to, to step in um, to stop it. Um, you know, sometimes when we are faced with, with persecution, the Lord decides to, to free us from the persecution. Sometimes we have to endure it. Sometimes it, we might even end up dead because of it. Um, that doesn't show a failure on the Lord's part. Um, that just shows you the attitude of people mm-hmm. towards, towards what we're doing. Um, so you might face persecution that, that puts you in some very difficult positions. You might face persecution that ends up with your death. Mm-hmm. But like verse 60 said, the, the euphemism you mentioned, he, he fell asleep. Even though Stephen was killed, it wasn't a permanent thing. Yeah. Because this is you know, saying he fell asleep. That's temporary. Yeah. Because we do have hope of the re- resurrection of something that's, that's to come that, that's even greater. Um, Probably so, indicative of, as well of uh, the type of death that he died, that, that he's dying in the Lord. And for, for those who die in the Lord... It is just a, it's a, it's just, it's just like a sleep, um, and there's, there's peace in that. And whereas somebody who dies outside of the Lord, I, I guess I'd be reluctant. I mean, it is the same thing, but I'd still be reluctant to use the term he or she fell asleep, um, right? Because for a person who dies outside of Christ, um, what comes next is not going to be pleasant or enjoyable at all. Um, there's this. There's a commentator here who uh, I, I, would, I just wanted to read this at the end because I, I, it's a neat little concept to kind of give away to the rest of the book of Acts. He said, to some extent, Stephen's brief but powerful ministry is a microcosm of Paul's ministry, because once Saul, later called Paul, becomes a Christian, it's as if we're going to watch him in Stephen's ministry all over again, but in very slow motion. So we saw Stephen's ministry all kind of summed up here in one chapter. Paul's ministry is going to end up being, you know, after we get past chapter 8, it's pretty much the whole rest of the book of Acts, with the yeah. exception of a couple places here and there. Uh, and I thought it's a neat, neat idea because chapter 8 is when we are going to start seeing uh, Paul uh, a little bit more um, and learning about about him. And um, 
this is this is persecution. I've heard the word persecution used a lot in our um, country and in our world in the last few weeks and months, and it is an insult for me to hear that word being bandied about the way that it has when I read passages like this, um, because this is real persecution. Um, even if even if you want to expand that definition of persecution to the way that we sometimes use it when we talk about, you know, when you're laughed at and ridiculed for, you know, mm. for going to church or when you're, you know, spoken evil of because you decide to live morally and not do immoral things. I, I get it. Yes, that that is a form of persecution, and 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 the Bible says that we should expect that. That that's that's part of. Uh, Christian living, um, but I'd be careful to just throw that word around as loosely as it sometimes is thrown around. Read Acts chapter 7, it, or if nothing else, just read those last five or six verses of Acts chapter 7. Read the first few verses of chapter 8. That's persecution. And that's, that, that's uh, I'm thankful to God that we live in, in a place and in a time, at least in our country, where where we don't experience that. I know there are brethren in other parts of the world who who that very much is their reality, or at least something much more closely akin to what we're reading about in the Bible. Um, but this is the, reading the chapter like this, it, it does prompt me just personally to want to make sure that I include in my prayers today a, a note of thanksgiving to God for for the freedoms and the privileges that we have to continue to be able to to teach and to preach and to worship Him and to serve Him, still in a very in a very open way, and I'm thankful for that. Yeah, Amen. Absolutely. There's there's a lot to be said about how much freedom we do have, um, and and what we're able to do because of that. Now, I I think we should take that, and because of our thankfulness, uh, be willing to do a little bit more. Yes. Than we yes. have before. Yes. Um, you know, th- these people were willing to to spread the gospel even to. Uh, you know, for the threat of their lives, you know, how much more should we be willing when our lives are not yes. in danger? Yep. And maybe maybe include in that prayer as well. Um, give me the courage right now to seize upon the freedom that we have. And if, Lord, if the day comes that, that those freedoms are taken away, Lord, I pray that you continue to give me the courage to keep on doing it. Yeah. You know, Um Anyway, it's kind of a that's kind of a somber note to to end on. But chapter seven does end in a very uh, somber kind of way. Um, but the good news is, you know, if if the, if the book of Acts had ended right there, man, boy, that would be a it'd be a bummer of a of a story. But we've still got, you know, twenty ish chapters to go, um, and we're going to see that Christianity is not put a stop to just because some people picked up some rocks and started throwing them. Um, some rocks ain't going to stop uh, Jesus and the work that he's doing through through his people. So I'm excited. I'm really excited to talk about chapter 8 next week. Probably one of my favorites in, in well, maybe maybe it probably is my favorite in, in the entire book of Acts. I don't know. I'm, I got a feeling you're, you're probably pretty... You're you're probably a big fan of chapter eight as well. I am. I, there, there's so much there, man, and it's 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 going to be action packed. Um, and I think that all of us need to just just get pumped, get ready for this next week because it, it's going to be action packed. It's going to be awesome. Um, 
Man, but remember what we, we read and remember what we talked about. Stay logical. Uh, and when we see something in Scripture, let's let's try to apply it to our lives. And above all, guys, let's, let's just keep studying. Yeah. Well, I've enjoyed talking about Acts chapter 7, and I look forward to talking about Acts chapter 8 next week and to uh, to, to hear hear the insights that, uh, that you'll have to share with me, Jason, personally. And we've said this a couple times in some previous uh, episodes, but if ever anybody who's listening wants to, uh, to study uh, with either of us or both of us um, or just has a comment or a question or even a disagreement about something that uh, that we've shared, we are kind of we're, we're kind of just you know kind of working off the cuff for the most part, and so it's very possible we could say something that's just not right or maybe needs some clarification later. Hey, we're more than open to that, and you uh, reach out to us, and we'll be glad to discuss those things. But till next time, uh, appreciate you all, and yeah, keep studying the word. <laughs>